Awesome. Well, others have said it, but I just want to take a moment and just say happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers. Today, we honor you, and uh, I hope that you are showered with love and appreciation and gratitude from your families. I hope that you get the gift that you really, really want, which let's be honest, every one of us knows the gift that every mother really wants is tickets to see Avengers Endgame. And so um, seems like a mom movie. I hope, hope that you're able to go see that and enjoy it. Uh, this is kind of an interesting time of year for, for us, for Carrie and I and our family. Uh, in less than a month, our oldest son, Alan, is going to graduate from high school, which is an incredible thing. It's uh, the first one for us. So we have been sort of immersed in graduation plans and um, a graduation party. And we've been looking through old pictures and photographs, you know, putting that together and reminiscing. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Carrie and I were just reminiscing about this memory we have of Alan when he was probably about five or six he lost his first tooth. And this was like this momentous moment. He loses his first tooth. And so we told him, Alan, there's this miraculous thing that will happen. If you will take your tooth tonight and put it under your pillow, the tooth fairy will enter your room, not in a creepy way at all. And uh, she will take your tooth because apparently she needs teeth and she will replace it with a dollar bill. Uh, when I was a kid, it was 25 cents, but I guess because of inflation, our kids got like a dollar. I'm not sure why that was. And so he, he was just blown away by this. He was like, this is a miracle. He just thought this is an incredible thing. And so that night he put his tooth under the pillow. And the next morning when he woke up, not only was there a dollar in place of where the tooth had been, but the tooth fairy went the extra mile. She took it one step further. Keep in mind, this was the first child. And... Um, the tooth fairy had written a handwritten note personally to Alan, a message directly to him. And Alan loved this. It, it was just absolutely miraculous to him. Uh, and he actually loved the note even more than he loved the dollar because really what's a six-year-old gonna do with a dollar anyway? And so he loved this note so much that he decided that he was gonna, he took it like as an invitation. And so he decided that night he was gonna write the tooth fairy a, a personal letter. So he did that. And even though there was no new teeth, he put that letter again the next night under his pillow. And the next morning, the tooth fairy had visited again and written him another handwritten letter. And this sort of started like a pen pal relationship between him and the tooth fairy. Every night, even though there were no new teeth, he kept putting another letter under there and the tooth fairy kept reciprocating and writing another letter. And um, this went on for weeks and then it went on for a little over a month. And how do, how do I say this well? Um, at first, the tooth fairy, she thought this was so adorable. <laughs> She thought this was so cute. And every, oh, this is so cute that he's doing this. But then as weeks turned into a month and it kept going on even beyond a month, the tooth fairy started getting grumpy about this. <laughs> she started coming to bed, complaining to her husband every night. I can't believe I've got to write another letter now tonight and do this. And uh, her husband would laugh at her every night when she would do that. So um, uh, the reason I tell you that story is because as we think about this series we're in, Unexpected, we're looking every week at a different miracle story in the life of Jesus. It's a different event where Jesus, uh, you know, creates a miracle in, in people's lives. And what I want you to see is that with each one of these miracles, it's never just an event in and of itself. There is always a message with each one of these miracles. With each one of these stories, it's just kind of like the note with the tooth fairy. There's always this message within each one of these stories. And that message is always an invitation to a deeper relationship with Jesus, to a deeper understanding of Jesus and who he is. 
And so I think the reason these stories are in the gospels, the reason that, we, that they exist, the reason the gospel writers put them in there is I think we're supposed to enter into these stories and we're supposed to see ourselves in these stories. We're supposed to be invited into this relationship with Jesus where we see ourselves and we see what he might want to do in our lives through each one of these stories. There's a message for you today in this story we're going to look at. And so Mark 5 is where we're going. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, says this, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so that she can live. So in this moment, Jesus gets off the boat on the north shore of Galilee, and immediately he's confronted with this crowd, and there's this character, Jairus is his name, and he is the leader of the synagogue, and he has a, a moment in his life, this crisis has happened, his daughter is dying, and he needs Jesus to heal him. Now, what's significant about this is to really grasp this story, you have to know how important the synagogue was to a local Jewish community like this in the first century. Uh, literally, the synagogue was very quite literally the center of a town. And um, no joke at all, in Capernaum and some other places on the North Shore of Galilee, we've uncovered like archaeologically these towns and the synagogue would be built and then they would literally build their houses around the synagogue. So it literally was the center of the community. And in more ways than one, the synagogue, of course, was the center for all religious activities and religious life for that Jewish community. But even more than that, it was the synagogue also served as the center for any sort of legal matters or legal dispute that would happen. If there was a legal dispute having to do with the law, it would be brought to the synagogue and the synagogue leader would rule on that and would make a judgment on that. It also was the center of the community when it came to education. It's where children were educated. It's where they were sent to learn the Torah. And so the synagogue was, was central to what it meant to be part of a community and to be part of life for, for a Jewish person. And so this is Jairus, the synagogue leader. And he, he meets Jesus as soon as he gets off the boat with this crowd of people. And Jairus would have been, as a synagogue leader, he would have been a wealthy person. He would have been... Uh, well-respected. He would have had influence in the community. And his daughter being dead, he's such a person of status that his daughter dying would have been enough to summon Jesus. He would have been important enough to summon Jesus to follow him to his home to have Jesus heal his daughter. And so that's what's happening here in this moment. The story continues. Verse 24 says, Jesus went with him and all the people followed crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed." Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Now, what you need to know about this moment and what's happening is that in the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, 
uh, what it said in Leviticus 15 is actually where you found this. And for a Jewish community, they would have known this law and followed it very closely. And Leviticus 15, what it says is that a woman with her condition would have been considered unclean. And what this means, if you were considered unclean, is that you would have had no access to the synagogue. Remember, the synagogue is the center of the community. It's the center of life. In fact, what it says in Leviticus 15 is that even just during the time of a woman's monthly period, she's considered unclean. And anybody she would touch is also unclean for a period of time. And anyone who would touch her would also become unclean. And so during that time, she was kept out of the synagogue. Now, this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. For 12 years, she's had no access to the synagogue. For 12 years, she's been considered unclean. For, for 12 years, she's suffered with this condition and she spent every dollar she has, she's destitute, to try to resolve this so she can be a part of the community again, but it's gotten no better. See, what's happening in this story here, if I can show you this, is this is a story about who is in and who is out. You have these two characters in the story. You have Jairus. He's the synagogue ruler. We're given his name and, he, and we're given his title. He's the synagogue ruler. He also has a daughter and his daughter is so sick and he, he is such a person of importance that it it's warrants Jesus coming to his house. He is a powerful enough person. He's an in enough person to summon Jesus to come to his house. And then you have this other character in the story, this woman. She's not given a name. Have you know, did you notice that? Jairus is named. She has no name in the story. No one seems to know her name. She has no status. She has no money. She spent everything she had trying to get better. And also it's very likely she had no children if she'd been bleeding for 12 years. She's probably a person with no children. She has no access to the synagogue. And ironically enough, whose job would it have been in this story to actually deny her access to the synagogue? Jairus. That's right. As the synagogue ruler, as the synagogue leader, it would have been his job to make sure that no unclean people like her were allowed access into the synagogue. This is about who is in and about who is out. And she pushes her way through the crowd, just sort of desperate, kind of like this Hail Mary. Maybe if I touch his robe, he'll heal me. His power will heal me. Let's keep going. Verse uh, 30. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? They're like, everybody's touching you, Jesus. Are you kidding me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. I want to focus in on this name that Jesus gives her. He calls her daughter. It's the only name we're given for her in this entire passage. She has no name until this moment. Why does Jesus call her that? She's not his daughter. She, she's not anybody's daughter who appears in the story. 
What she does is she sort of sneaks up behind Jesus like a thief, trying to like steal some power, trying to steal some healing. Maybe I can sort of rip him off and steal some healing from him. And Jesus, in this moment, turns around, lifts her up publicly in front of everyone, looks her in the eye and says, oh no, you are a daughter. You're a child of God and you are every bit as worthy to receive healing as a synagogue's daughter is. I don't know if you see the power of what Jesus is doing here in this moment. In this one moment, the Mosaic law has just been reversed. The Mosaic law in Leviticus 15 said anybody who would touch this woman or anyone who she touches should have become unclean. When she touched Jesus' robe, her uncleanness should have made Jesus unclean. But instead, it's, the law is reversed. What happens is Jesus' healing resurrection power actually overcomes her uncleanness and makes her whole. That's who Jesus is. There's nothing about our uncleanness or our unbrokenness that can contaminate him. When we touch Jesus, when we come into contact with Jesus, it's his healing power that actually makes us whole and redeems us. And in this moment, something so much more significant than just a physical healing is happening. Yes, the bleeding stops physically, but even more than that, this is a woman who has no name. She has no status. She has no standing. She's not been in the synagogue for 12 years. And in this moment, she's lifted up publicly and she is restored to her community. Jesus calls her daughter. You are a child of your heavenly father. And in this one moment, all her social brokenness is also healed and she's restored. She's welcomed back into the community again. But there's a cost. While this is happening, the story continues. It keeps going on. Verse 35 While Jesus was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. I just want to take a moment, if we could, and kind of turn this story toward ourselves. And I want to ask you, how would you feel if you were Jairus? If you could put yourself in his position for a moment, how would you feel if you were Jairus? You're sitting here and you're the religious guy. You're the one who's been faithful to God. You've served this community well. You've prayed. You've asked God for his healing. You've gone and found Jesus. He's, Jesus is on his way to your house to answer this prayer, to heal your daughter so she doesn't die. And while he's walking, this unclean person stops him and interrupts him. And she takes up a bunch of his time. And while he's dealing with her, your daughter dies. Have you ever felt like God wasn't fair? Maybe even uh, for some of us in this room, Mother's Day drags up a whole host of feelings. I've had conversations with people in this church who have said things like, I, I don't understand why that birth mom can just have child after child, can get pregnant again and again and again, only to have her children taken away from her in the system, but we can't get pregnant? We who go to church, who, who serve God, who have prayed and who want to raise our child in a Christian home to know Jesus, he won't allow us to have a child? Are you kidding me? But, but they can just keep getting pregnant again and again and again. Uh, There's a family who, who serves in our tech team. This is the first um, year, this is the first Mother's Day they've had without their mother. 
Maybe this is the first year where, where you haven't had a mother and everybody else is making plans today and celebrating their mom. Maybe you're estranged from your mom and Mother's Day is sort of a mixed bag of emotions as you kind of watch other people get to celebrate, but you don't. Have you ever felt like God just wasn't fair? And you've been praying, you've been seeking him, you've been doing all the things, but he seems to be taking care of other people. Seems to be busy with others rather than you. These are the moments in our lives where bitterness and disillusionment set in, where discouragement becomes doubt in our lives. Look at what Jesus responds. Look at how Jesus talks to Jairus in this moment. Verse 36, Jesus overheard them, the crowd of people saying, sorry, your daughter's dead, don't bother the teacher. And Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Don't be afraid, just have faith. I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't explain anything to Jairus, does he? He doesn't say, in this moment, you, you almost want Jesus to go, hold on, Jairus, don't freak out. Let me explain to you what's gonna happen. Okay, first I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that. Then this is how I'm gonna take care of this whole problem. That's what we want Jesus to do. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus doesn't explain what he's about to do. He doesn't qualify it in any way. He just says, Jairus, don't be afraid. By the way, that is the most repeated command in all of scripture. Don't be afraid, just have faith. You don't get an explanation as to why. You don't get an explanation as to how. Just have faith. The language we've used to describe that here at Frontline is this phrase, yes before how. The, the expression of faith, a move of faith is always yes before there's a how. We want there to be the how first, right? We want God to be like, okay, here's how I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna explain it. Here's how I'm gonna fix this situation. Here's how I'm gonna provide for you when I call you to step out in faith. And, and then we get to kind of decide like, okay, that sounds pretty good to me. Maybe I'm in Jesus. <laughs> That's how we want it to be. That's not how faith works. Faith is always, yes, I trust you. Yes, I surrender myself to you. Yes, I will, I will obey, even though I don't know the how. The how is God's job. Jesus is the one who will bring about the how. Our job is yes. Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, just have faith. But how are you gonna fix this situation? My daughter's dead. Just have faith. Yes, before how. We shared a couple weeks ago, as a church, if we had just focused on the how when it came to the roof and the sound system, we wouldn't have had this miracle that we've experienced. There's something powerful that happens when we just say, yes, God, I will be obedient to you. I will trust you even if I don't know the how. That's what Jesus is inviting Jairus to do in this moment. Verse 38, it says, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Now there's a few things going on in just that one paragraph. First of all, once again, Numbers chapter five in the, in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, very well known by, the, by this Jewish community, Numbers five says that if you touch a dead person, it makes you unclean. 
touching a dead person should have made Jesus unclean. Jesus walks into this situation. He takes this dead girl by the hand. Again, and this is the moment where Jesus should have been declared unclean and unfit to even be in the synagogue. But instead, her deadness doesn't contaminate him. It's his life. It's his resurrection life that overpowers and raises her back to life. And the way he does it is significant. This phrase Jesus uses to raise her from the dead, he, he says, Talitha Kaum. Do you wonder why that wasn't translated for us? Like, right, I mean, this is all translated, but that one phrase is still in the original language. Talitha Kaum, little girl, get up. The reason why it's, it's not translated for us is because we actually don't have an exact translation for that phrase, Talitha Kaum. We don't know quite exactly what it means. What we believe is that that phrase was a well-known colloquialism that parents would use with their children. It was a well-known phrase that they would use to wake up their children in the morning. So, and it was just kind of distinct to that society and that group of people at this time. Kind of like, you know, when you think about when you go in the morning to wake your kids up and you, maybe you say, rise and shine. Or for me, I say, I'm going to kill you if you don't get out of bed. The bus is coming and you're going to be on it one way or the other, even if you're naked. I mean, this is, this is what I say in the morning, but uh, maybe that's not what you say. Uh, get up. I say to you, Talitha Kaum. This is an expression as a parent talking to a child. So Jesus, in this moment, he addresses her as his child. Just like he spoke to this woman and he called her daughter, he gave her a new name, daughter. That's what you are. In the same way, he's speaking to this little girl like as a parent would talk to his daughter. Why? She's not his daughter. She's Jairus' daughter. She's the synagogue leader's daughter. There are two daughters in this story. Both of them raised back to life, both of them restored and given a, a new identity through their touch with Jesus. And Mark goes even a step further. He says, there's something even more significant happening here. There's a message with this healing. It's not just a miracle story with these two people in and of itself, but there's something else. There's a message. There's an invitation even beyond that. Mark includes this weird de detail. I don't know if you caught it. How old was the little girl when she was raised back to life? 12. She was 12 years old. How many years had the woman been bleeding? 12. Just a little hint. Whenever you're reading one of these stories in the gospel and the gospel writer includes a number, and it seems to make no sense at all. Like, oh, by the way, I just want you to know this woman, it had been 12 years. Oh, by the way, this little girl, she, she was 12 years old when she died and was raised back to life. Like, okay, thanks. Why did we need to know that number? We said this a couple weeks ago, but the gospel writers were actually very interested in numerology. And so they saw, they specifically included details like this because they saw numbers as symbolic, pointing to, to a deeper reality, pointing to a bigger reality. So Mark wants us to know there's significance here to this number 12. And the number 12 in the gospels, most often when you see it, it represents Israel. It represents God's holy people. There were 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And even at this time, in a, in a north shore of Galilee, small Jewish community, every single person in this town would have been able to trace their ancestry, their roots, all the way back to one of those 12 tribes. 12 was Israel. So, so Mark is trying to tell us this story, this dead girl and this bleeding woman, it, it has something to do with Israel. The number 12, it has something to do 
with the story of God's holy set apart people. I, I can't help but think what's happening here in this moment, the significance of it is Jesus is setting apart. God is calling a new set apart people. He's setting apart an, a new group of people through the person of Jesus himself. This is the gospel in this moment. These people aren't made whole or made well based on their own ability to be in or out, their own ability to follow the law, their own ability to qualify themselves as clean or unclean. God is setting apart a new tribe, a new holy people through the person of Jesus alone, not from any merit that anybody else can bring to the table, but only through their touch with Jesus. So with each one of these stories, the question we ask is, what does this tell us about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus in this story? What this story is showing us is that Jesus, as he goes through in this story, Jesus is calling his church. He is calling and setting apart for himself a new set apart people for eternity. And they're set apart through him. We're made clean through him. All the divisions that we have between each other. Who's in, who's out, who's clean, who's not clean, who has the ability to, to, to declare themselves righteous, who doesn't, it's worthless, it's meaningless. We're made whole, we're restored, and we're made new in Jesus alone. That's what we're learning. That's what, that's what this story is beginning to reveal to us. And so I'd love to just ask the question then, where do you see yourself in this story? Again, I think the point of these stories is to give us a picture of how Jesus works and what he's doing, what the gospel message is. And then we're invited to say, where do I see myself? Where, where do I live in this story? So as you look at this story, maybe you are like this woman who's been suffering for years. And life just feels like it's been interrupted and maybe you've been excluded. Maybe you feel like you don't fit even this morning at church. Maybe you feel like you're not allowed to be here. You're not allowed to be experiencing what God is doing in the lives of others. And this morning, dare to push through the crowd, dare to do whatever you have to do to touch and to lay hold of the person of Jesus, to confess him as Lord, to surrender your life to him, to be obedient to him and to touch the person of Jesus and hear him today call you daughter, son, child of God. That's what you are. That's your new identity. Not by your own merit, not by your own goodness, but by Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection, your uncleanness can't touch him, can't, can't contaminate him. It's his power that makes you whole. It makes you a child of God. Maybe you see yourself more in, in the character of Jairus. Maybe you've been praying. Maybe you've been going to church. You've been doing everything you can. Man, you've been faithful. And you've been asking God for this breakthrough. You've been praying for something. You've been asking him to move in your life. And it seems like he's doing that for everybody else, but not for you. Hear Jesus today say to you, don't be afraid, just have faith. Yes, before how. Yes comes before how. Yes, I will trust you, even though I don't understand the how. The how is your job. 
Maybe you see yourself most in this little girl. Maybe it feels like life has just been interrupted and has just stopped by some crisis and it just feels like everything's dead. Maybe you feel like your best days are just behind you and there's nothing really to live for at this point. Hear Jesus say to you, Talitha Kaum, get up, check your pulse. If you still have a pulse, it means you're still alive, which means he ain't done with you yet. If you're still here and you're still alive, it means God still has something for you. He still has a plan for you. Hear him say to you, Talitha Kaum, get up. You're not dead, you've just been asleep. Jesus comes to call the dead back to life. Love if we could, if we just bow our heads for a moment. I love to do exactly what this story invites us to do. And that's just, let's just come to Jesus, every single one of us, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in this story, just bring your story before him. This morning, Jesus, I just lift up my brothers and sisters in this room. God, I pray for this morning for those who maybe feel like um, they've been suffering for a long time and there's been no relief and they don't feel like they have any status. Maybe even this morning, they don't feel like they belong. Jesus, would you whisper to each one of them, you're a daughter, you're a son, you are a child of God. God, I just pray for anybody in this room who maybe uh, we see ourselves in the person of Jairus and we, we've tried, we've worked, we've on our own effort, we've tried to be good enough. We've prayed hard and we haven't seen the breakthrough. Jesus, would you whisper to each of us this morning, don't be afraid, just have faith. This morning, God, we declare yes before we know the how. We, de- we say yes to you and Jesus. We say yes to your power, yes to your name. We trust you, we surrender our lives to you and we allow you to do your work, even if we don't understand how it's gonna all work out. God, I just pray for anybody in this room who maybe sees themselves most uh, in this little girl. It feels like life has just stopped. Life's been interrupted. And maybe we've believed the lies of the enemy that our best days are behind us, that we'll never experience life again. We'll never experience hope again. This morning, God, would you whisper to us, Talitha Kaum, I say to you, get up. You're not dead yet. There's more life to live. So this morning, Jesus, we come to you. We find ourselves made whole and made complete and restored in you alone. We just thank you for your power, your resurrecting healing power that makes us whole, that calls us to be a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen.